And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, July 19th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, no shortage of ideas for reforming Defense Department acquisition. Plus, the Federal Permitting Council gets a new lease on life thanks to that infrastructure bill. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Defense Department employees stationed in Japan say they've been facing a serious crisis in accessing health care, going on for months. The problems have eased a bit after DOD partially reinstated some civilian access at its military treatment facilities there. But Congress is looking for something more long-term. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has got an update on the problem in the latest federal report. He joins me now. And Jared, safe to say the National Defense Authorization Act will be the vehicle for this remedy? That's a very good guess. There's actually provisions in both the NDAA on the House side and in the appropriations bill on the House side, both possibly going some way towards solving these access to care issues that civilians have been facing really since last September. In that authorization bill, the NDAA that that you mentioned, Congress is looking for a study conducted, interestingly, by U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and not the Defense Health Agency on some of the access challenges that have been happening out there and what what its workforce really needs to conduct its missions. And then on the appropriations side, there is some language in the bill this year that that really expresses concern about the military health system's hiring practices, its ability to give access to care to its entire population, not just in Japan, but really around the world. And so on that side, on the appropriator side, they're looking for a strategy uh, within 180 days after the, the bill's passage. Sounds like it's something at least both sides can agree on because there's a lot of things in the NDAAs that they're fighting over, which could delay the whole thing. But just by way of brief background, in general, civilians covered under the federal health benefits program don't access their health care through military facilities, except occasionally when they're co-located out of the United States. Yeah, it's a complicated question, and you get different answers depending on exactly who you talk to in terms of what people were promised. We've talked to some folks who say they were explicitly told by their hiring agency that they would get their health care through the military treatment facility. Others who have said that that's just always been, you know, de facto the case. What The way it actually works on paper is that civilians, when they are assigned overseas um, to, to DOD commands, are treated on a space-available basis. In practice, until recently, that hasn't really been a huge deal because there has been enough appointment availability for them to get adequ- adequate access to health care, especially in Japan. There are other parts of the world, I'm told, where it's much more common for folks to go out on the local economy to get their health care. That hasn't been traditionally the case in Japan, partly because of very big cultural differences in the way medicine is provided in Japan compared to what we're accustomed to in in Western medicine from from, uh, U.S.-based providers. It has been, again, traditionally the case that that a lot of DOD civilians, most DOD civilians, have gotten their care through MTFs. What happened last September is the Defense Health Agency, which, remember, now runs all of the military treatment facilities, took a more, I guess you, you could call it, narrow interpretation of that space available policy and, and said that they were only going to allow these civilians to make appointments on the day that they wanted care and only for acute non-recurring conditions. So they would literally have to call their clinic or their hospital every single day to see if there was any appointment availability for the particular category of care that they or their kids might need. And in some cases, it took a very long time to get seen. Then just one more piece of background here. 
DHA partially reversed that policy in March so that people could once again make some appointments in advance and not just have to wait till the day of. But what advocates there say is that it really has not restored their access to emergency care and there still really is not a lot of appointment availability. So it's still a pretty serious problem out there. But basically what Congress is looking at in the NDAAs to fix this permanently is starting with a study. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think it's interesting that they're asking Indo-PACOM, which is the U.S. combatant command that's responsible for the region, to talk about what its needs and its mission risk would be under various types of healthcare scenarios. So they're asking Indo-PACOM to look at really three different scenarios. One is just a continuation of the, the current policy, which is creating some of these access problems. Another would be a scenario in which DOD is directly responsible for providing care to these civilian employees, as well as military members and their families. And then a third scenario where they're doing all that, plus contractor employees who are attached to these commands. So they want Indo-PACOM's views on what kind of, again, mission risk it would be accepting under each of those three scenarios and what its overall costs for for, uh, having personnel in the region would be, how those would be impacted by those three different choices. And then there's the issue of mothers who are delivering babies in Okinawa, and that's come up also. Yeah, the whole issue of obstetrics has been a, a big issue that has popped up ever since these access to care problems have, have become really acute. And, and some folks will tell you it's been an ongoing issue even before that. This Okinawa issue that you talked about is just one example of that that happened relatively recently in which they very briefly put all of their patients and, and not just civilian patients, but also military patients on what they called diversion into what they, what they called a stork nesting program where they would be flown back to the United States for really the duration of the, the, the latter parts of their pregnancy and recovery. They managed to reverse that a few days after it became public. It, they have not been explicit about how they managed to do that, but they did manage to find adequate staffing to let folks who had appointments to have their babies in Japan at at Okinawa um, follow through on those. So a lot of back and forth on these policy changes, and that's part of what's been so frustrating for for the people who are living through it out there. And in its defense appropriations bill, the House is taking a broader look at the whole access issue, as you're writing, beyond Japan specifically. Yeah, that's right. There's no language specific to Japan on the appropriations side, but they're, they're talking about the severe difficulties DHA more generally has had in attracting and hiring medical personnel really around the world. And nurses apparently is really the big problem that the committee is talking about here. They want some reporting on the current hiring practices that they say leave the department at a disadvantage when it's competing with private sector healthcare providers and, and when they're recruiting those personnel who are sometimes civilians, sometimes contractors, depends on the situation. DHA, one of the things it has done over the past few years is started to phase out some of its military medical billets. And so it's become increasingly reliant on those civilians and contractors who it has to uh, compete with the private market for. So that's that's part of the issue that's going on here and part of what the committee wants some answers to. Yeah. And the House bill then would restore some of that staffing, right, the uh, organic staffing to the military treatment facilities. It's not clear that they're going that far quite yet. It looks like they're still in sort of the study phase to understand some of the consequences of this Again, reduction in those military medical billets, um, but but they have not reached the point yet where they are directing DOD to restore uh, the, the, those personnel, either on the military side or on the civilian side. They may get there. All right. So they're concerned about access and they're dealing with it legislatively, but really then the whole idea is hostage to what they disagree about in the NDAAs. 
which are somewhat healthcare related with respect to abortion care. Yeah, that's that's the issue that's going to uh, cause quite a bit of controversy on the House side. I should I shouldn't say is going to. It already is. It, it does appear that because of some language that was added on the House floor, which would basically require DOD to stop funding travel so that people could, could get re- reproductive health care. That's going to be a poison pill for the Democrats who will not vote for it. That's most likely going to be sorted out in conference committee and, and may be completely stripped out of the bill when they negotiate with the Senate and it goes back to the floors. But a, a lot of steps between here and there before we see uh, before we see the legislation return to the House floor and the Senate floor. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Check out his federal report now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Federal Permitting Council Reform Group gets a new lease on life thanks to a new infrastructure spending. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. An old saying goes something like this, if it moves, tax it, if it moves too fast, regulate it, and if it stops moving, subsidize it. Artificial intelligence is in that fast-moving stage, but no one seems quite to have any sense of how or even why to regulate it. My next guest has a few clues, though. He's Senior Vice President and General Manager of MITRE Labs, and he joins me now, Dr. Charles Clancy. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. And you have written with a team here, put together some really strong recommendations for what are the cogent ways to maybe regulate artificial intelligence. But let's back up for a moment to the whys. It seems to be a lot of people have a vague notion or fear of this thing, and it's not any single thing. It's a lot of things. So tell us the background here. Sure. I'd say over the last six months, we've really seen... AI spring from something that was very much uh, researcher focused and very small community focused on it to something that's now much more ubiquitous in public consciousness. And it really has to do with the growth of large language models and broadly accessible tools like ChatGPT that have, I think, shifted our understanding of the relationship between humans and AI. In some sense, it's parallel to how Bitcoin made people realize there's something called blockchain and cryptocurrency out there. Chat GPT made people realize the reality of AI. Yeah, and certainly AI has been incrementally improving almost every imaginable industry in small ways. But I think the visible leap forward that we saw with Chat GPT is one that's, I think, causing people to think that we maybe need to do more. Right, because earlier AI applications did augmentation of human activity. You call these newer ones AI with agency, that it can almost act on its own. Exactly. I think there's kind of three tiers here. One is the AI that's already around us and involved in almost everything we do digitally. And that's where AI is just a small component in a much more complex system. Think about an autonomous vehicle, right? It's got cameras that it's using to detect the road, other cars, traffic signs and lights. All of that is AI that's pretty well understood. We know how to test it. We know how to train it. We know how to assure it. But these uh, sort of more almost um, AI with agency or AI that can execute tasks autonomously that just sort of lives out on the Internet is sort of this new frontier. And as people worry about half-truths or non-truths or fake news, there's a million words for it, we have seen that these generative programs can create something that looks truthful, but to any expert or someone that delves deeply or people that have like created their own biographies using it and see the falsehoods in there, it's not the machine deliberately lying, but it could be made to do that too, and that's one of the concerns? 
Of course. Yeah. The role of AI in accelerating mis- and disinformation is a major concern, I think, that, that many people share. And it's not so much that we can now create an image that we never could create before. Certainly, there were digital artists who could create completely convincing images. It's just now that an untrained amateur can create something that is undetectably different from that of real. And also, the people who do this for a living, the propagandists, the mis- and disinformation folks, now have tools that can allow them to do 10, 100 times more than they could before. Yeah, it's like people that can get 10 people together on Twitter, and you'd think the whole world is saying something when it's 10 people on Twitter. Exactly. The same holds true for cyber uh, as well, right? So large language models have the potential to take amateur hackers and turn them into world-class and take world-class hackers and turn them into people who can hack hundreds of targets at once, right? That's other companion concern. And before we get into some of the details of your regulatory recommendations, and there's a good list, I think, of about seven of them, what's the methodology by which your group arrived at this framework? Well, first, I think we took the approach that we already have a lot of regulatory agencies that have significant responsibility for either regulated industries or critical infrastructure. And they're the domain experts already. And AI is really just kind of the next phase. Many of these industries have already seen the migration from hardware to software, from software to AI. And so they're the most equipped to understand the context and the risks of their industry. And that's where the regulation should be happening rather than some new agency that would be out trying to regulate AI in ubiquity. We're speaking with Dr. Charles Clancy. He's Senior Vice President and General Manager of MITRE Labs. And let's get into some of the framework items. You have a list of possible regulatory approaches. And what are some of the highlights of those? Yeah. So first, I think we want to empower the existing regulatory agencies to really incorporate AI as part of the existing framework. So good examples would be aviation. Aviation has gone from a very hardware-centric model to things like the Boeing 787, which increasingly relied on software and updatable software. That was a big change in how we had to think about certifying and regulating aviation. And you can really think about AI as the next generation of that in terms of a whole new class of software with new capabilities. I think the FDA is another great example as you think about how we regulate medical devices. We already have a shift from hardware now to software-based medical device regulation, right? AI is that next frontier. And so I think the first is really about helping those agencies understand in a systematic way what the risks are and then be able to apply that effectively to their industry. Yeah, those agencies have their domains, so they should become expertise in AI in that domain. For example, the FDA has a program now to test whether AI can be used to speed up drug approval, for example, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's roles for agencies like NIST, who are responsible for technology standards in general, to create the frameworks and the standards that those other agencies could apply in their regulatory process. And establishing liability for AI-caused harms, that's where you're going to really get into the political buzzsaws and cross-currents of Washington. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, from a liability perspective, we're seeing this already in the software domain, right, where the national cybersecurity strategy that came out of the White House earlier this year suggested that we start holding software vendors more accountable for vulnerabilities in their code, not just the companies that deploy and operate that software. And I think as we go into this AI space, it's still open question as to who's accountable, right? Is it the people who design the model, train the model, deploy the model, or use the model? Uh, where is the liability in that chain? And, and we really just don't have answers to that from a legal perspective yet. Right, because someone could design a model, and it's a perfectly good model that doesn't know A from B, and then someone would feed it deliberately biased training data to make it do something that would seem, wow, okay, it works great. 
not knowing the bias that was fed into it. And so that's not really the model creator, but it's rather the trainer that is the issue. Exactly. So the, the industry today is adopting what's called model cards. Um, and so this is when you create an AI model, you have to say how you trained it and how you tested it and what assumptions you had about its use. And you can release the model into the wild, but it, 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 it's sort of a buyer beware disclaimer so that if someone uses the model in a way that it wasn't trained or wasn't intended or wasn't tested, then they know that the performance may be degraded or it may, it may not work as expected. So the first step is kind of this nutrition labeling for AI. So people at least are informed in their, their use of the models. Yeah, it seems like the aviation analogy is an apt one because the earlier planes were just cables and pulleys and you could twist a rudder back here and it would make the thing move in front and you knew your system was good because it was just cables and pulleys. Whereas now they're just these software stuffed black boxes and people getting on presume they'll do what they say they will do. But as we found out in some recent incidents and regulatory and liability disasters in aviation, it doesn't always work out that way. A hundred percent. And I think you could imagine all of the innovation that we have today in autonomous vehicles around being able to do machine perception, orchestration control. Imagine applying that in an aviation context, right? You'd have even greater concerns from a safety perspective. You know, a very old form of certification for the consumer who can't test meat and produce themselves is the USDA stamp. So maybe do you envision that type of output when this is all done and the agencies have the expertise they need to regulate that there would be some kind of equivalent of the Pennsylvania Agriculture Department or the USDA stamp on AI-driven products? So I think there have been calls for third-party auditing and certification of AI models. I think that can be part of the ecosystem, but I, I guess I really want to tie it back to the agencies who understand the context of the areas that they're regulating in helping bring that context forward. I would be very concerned about a third-party AI auditor who's responsible for auditing AI in every imaginable application because they just lack the necessary domain expertise to make the, the needed risk-informed decisions. So like I said, I think that role is important, but it should be sort of managed through the existing regulatory functions we have. And we could go on for hours. This report is pretty detailed, and it gives the pros and cons and possible approaches to many ways. Who's reading it? Where are you promulgating it? And any reaction to it so far? We have been circulating it, certainly among the U.S. government agencies that MITRE supports through our federally funded research and development centers, working at the White House, at the Hill, and getting a lot of positive feedback, trying to do something constructive that is implementable within our current government regulatory ecosystem. And so far, a lot of interest. So um, we'll see how things go on the Hill with the, the sort of current legislative session. But I expect some of these things will find their way into legislation. Yeah. When it comes to the Hill, it would seem like some real nuance and understanding would be required before passing legislation, because you can do more harm than good with hammer-like legislation that misses the mark. Yeah. And I think we've seen, um, I don't know, a thousand flowers bloom when it comes to AI legislation uh, on the Hill being introduced over the last month. I think Chuck Schumer's done a commendable job of trying to corral that and be a focal point for really trying to drive all that energy in a common, useful direction. So I'm impressed so far with where we're headed legislatively. Because it's fair to say in the final analysis that AI can do a great deal to help American competitiveness, economic growth, and national security also. 
Oh, of course, right. As the U.S. is making significant investments in science and technology, really to maintain our own technical health and economic competitiveness, particularly vis-a-vis China, we want to be in a position for the U.S. to lead globally in, in AI. And if we create an overly burdensome regulatory environment that just stifles innovation, then that doesn't set us up for long-term success. Dr. Charles Clancy is Senior Vice President and General Manager of MITRE Labs. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his AI regulatory framework at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, mid-year, which we've already passed, is a great time to review your financial options. But first, everybody's talking about that GAO report on empty federal offices. Here's what the GAO really said. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The most talked about Government Accountability Office report in months confirmed what a lot of people suspected. Federal offices are largely unoccupied, a continuation of the situation during the pandemic. My next guest is the man behind that report. He's the GAO's Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure, David Maroney. Mr. Maroney, good to have you with us. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. And let's start with the numbers. I think people were surprised at how unoccupied offices really were, thinking maybe, well, they're half full, three quarters full, but that's not what you found. That's right. So we looked at 24 headquarters buildings in the D.C. area, and what we found is all 24 had extra space. Most were using 25% or less of their capacity. So that's a pretty low utilization. But even on the range, if you're looking at all 24, it went from about 10% utilization to about 50%. So it's really a government-wide issue here. And did you look at government-owned buildings only, or were these some of these large lease spaces also? So most of them are owned headquarters buildings, but there are some that are leased. But regardless, across the board, you're saying the same utilization pattern. Right. You could probably project what's going on in headquarters to leased space that might be allied to an agency across town, in other words. Well, you could, as long as it was office space of the similar type, and again, headquarters function, so administrative, professional, policy kind of value. And to what extent do you understand or feel that this occupancy rate, 10 to 15 percent, you know, is across the nation, say, in other cities that have large federal presences? So it's hard to say. Once you get outside of D.C., the use of federal space varies. They can be labs, secure facilities. What I would say is if they're office spaces and performing similar functions, policy, administrative, it would likely be they have similar utilization rates. Wow. Were you a little bit surprised that it was that low? The numbers jump off the page. Uh, GEO has pointed out for years, 20 years at this point, about underused space in federal office buildings. So the fact that there was underused space was not surprising, but I agree. Uh, the number is kind of jumps off the page. Fair to say it wasn't 100% before the pandemic. Correct. It was not 100% before the pandemic. This has been a long-standing challenge agencies have dealt with that we have highlighted. But since the pandemic with the embrace of telework, it seems to have gone to a higher level. And what was your methodology? Did you simply poll the agencies or did you send some people to walk around and count cubicles or what? So we had a, at a high level, a two-step process. First, we gathered data on each of the headquarters buildings, their usable square footage. So that's places you can put people in desks. 
offices, team rooms, conference rooms, and then divided that by a GSA benchmark for how much space each person should have. And that gave us the capacity of the building, how many theoretically could be in that building on a given day. Step two was we collected in-office attendance data for couple weeks in January, February, and March, and compared the capacity to say, okay, uh, how many people were actually using that space in this period of time? Got it. So just to validate the methodology, if a building could have X number of people, but that agency decided, well, we want to give our people 20% more than that because they want to you know, be able to eat their sardines and stretch their shoulders and stretch their arms out or whatever the case might be, then that would begin with a baseline of 80% in that building. Correct. That's a great way to look at it. It's So utilization is not the same as attendance. You could have a building that in theory could hold a thousand people and only have 500 people assigned to it. So right off the bat, it's at 50% utilization. But this study was done, I mean, what was the impetus here? Because you wanted to find out what's really going on in this post-pandemic era when there's this tug of war between agency management, the White House gently pulling on one end and the employees and employee union groups and so forth pulling on the other end of the rope. Right. Well, it was a twofold reason for looking at this. First, as I mentioned, we've been looking at this for 20 years now as a, a problem. So we wanted to continue to highlight this challenge of unneeded space held onto by federal agencies. But secondly, post-pandemic, there's obviously been an embrace of hybrid work, of telework. And so we wanted to get a sense of what has changed? What does the picture look like now? Yes. And I wanted to ask you, too, whether there's any sense from this that if a given occupancy is 15 percent, does that mean that the same 15% are coming in every day and 85% of the employees don't, or that 15% of the population happens to be in that building on a given day, probably not within the scope. But do you have a sense of that? So that would vary by agency on how they collected their data. Some might have that ability because they're badging in, badging out. It identifies the person. Could be a variety of things. For our purposes, we were looking at how is the space being used, not attendance per se. Right. But at least the agencies know that much. That's kind of good news. Some likely do. Some may not. It depends. The quality of the data varies. Right. So the, some might be making nicely educated guesses and some might be counting the key pass tally. That is a fair statement. <laughs> We're speaking with David Maroney. He's acting director of physical infrastructure at the Government Accountability Office. And so did you have any recommendations here? Now we know what the pig weighs. The question is how to fatten it, thin it, slaughter it or what? So the key is for agencies to decide now, take a hard look at their space needs and their plans going forward for in-office attendance and other factors and decide how much space do we really need and move in that direction. It's not going to be cost-free. It costs money to do any sort of consolidations, any disposals of properties, but it's important to move forward now. Yeah, consolidation has been a bugaboo for a long time, I think, across the government. And I guess our agencies may be reluctant to move into another building because it doesn't have their name across the skyline, like the Federal Trade Commission building. Well, the GAO's own building on the congressional side, you've got several tenants in there besides GAO. We do. And that is one of the challenges that officials identified is a sense of cultural reticence to giving up your own headquarters space or even within departments, bureaus giving up their own controlled space. But it's something that agencies should consider if it's going to make it more efficient. And as you noted at GEO headquarters, we already do that. We have a couple of agencies in our building, too. It can be done. Because if you look at like one of the pictures in the report was the Francis Perkins Labor Building, kind of a big nondescript block. It looks like a Dilbert building or something. And I don't know what the occupancy there was, but that looks like it could fit three other agencies. If you've got agencies with 15 percent occupancy in a building like the Perkins Building, then you can get six agencies in there. 
Well, potentially. It's something the agency should look at. I mean, part of it, too, is deciding what is their in-office attendance policy going to be going forward. That's going to help determine how much space they actually need. And then once they have that information, yeah, looking at options of consolidation, sharing space makes sense. Because in a building with low percentage of occupancy, that doesn't mean that the cost of the building is related to the occupancy. There's a certain base level to keep the thing, the pipes from freezing and the roof from caving in. I mean, they need maintenance whether there's anybody in there or not. Completely true. Cost money either to own buildings or to lease it. You have your lease cost, and that's going to take place whether or not people are at their desks. Environmental cost, too. takes a lot of energy to heat, cool, and light these buildings, and those operations are going to continue again whether someone's at their desk or not. And what's the reaction been so far? This report's only been out a couple weeks, I think, now, and I know it's gotten some attention on Capitol Hill. That's your client, ultimately, but also in a lot of other quarters. What about contractors that might be having to go in side by side with the different color badges in federal buildings? So in terms of contractors, they're actually in our numbers. We included mission-based contractors in our numbers. So that too plays into it. The agencies need to look at the overall picture. How many people are working in their building, not necessarily just federal staff, but working out of that space and how much is really needed, whether contractors or agency officials. Right. So there's a lot agencies can do without congressional action. If they wanted to consolidate, say, if a big unit of Health and Human Services said, we kind of like it being near the ramp to 395. We're going to move over to the Perkins building. They can just do that, right? Well, they can take steps in that direction. They can certainly identify the property. It takes money. So it's not as simple as, you know, today we make a decision, tomorrow we have to do it. There's a long time to get it through the process. And there's steps if you decide, for instance, to get rid of a property. Uh, that's a complicated process, too, which is all the more reason to take that hard look now and start making decisions, because it does take time and money to get to that end state. Is there any possibility legally, I, wish, I guess I would ask, of federal space being leased out to commercial tenants? I keep using that poor old Francis Perkins building, but suppose a law firm wanted to move in there. Would that be possible legally? So it depends on the situation. Uh, there have been examples where the federal government has uh, leased out federal properties that have been vacated. So there are a couple of hotels in D.C. where that has been the case. So there is some possibilities. I wouldn't be able to speak to every legal situation, but there have been some examples where that's been used. Yeah. So where do we go from here with this report? I mean, it's out there and it is what it is to use the common vernacular, but nobody seems to be acting. So we'll be keeping an eye on this, uh, and I know Congress will as well. We just had a hearing last week at the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee to take a look at this. And we have ongoing work. We'll keep on the focus on what are agencies now doing to make these decisions about their space needs uh, and keep it on the front burner. And would you be able to answer the main cosmic question, which everybody has, and there seems to be some universal resonance going on here, and that is that the traffic in and out of D.C. at rush hours, which is most of the day, is absolutely terrible, and yet nobody's going to work. Can you explain that one? <laughs> I wish I could, Tom. It's the same here in Atlanta where I'm based, so I cannot say. All right. Well, I'm going to keep asking everyone that might know. David Maroney is Acting Director of Physical Infrastructure at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive at your dining room table or wherever. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, mid-year, we're past it already, is a great time to review your financial options. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. With the calendar year half over, it's a good time to review your financial life. For people in the federal employee health benefits plans, for example, open season isn't all that far off. Financial advisor Abe Grungold joins me with a few of the housekeeping tips to keep in mind at this year's midpoint. And, well, what should people be doing now besides thinking about their beach vacation, Abe? Well, Tom, thank you for having me on today. And if you are a federal employee and you got married or divorced this year, or maybe you moved to another home or apartment, you need to update your federal employee benefit forms and beneficiaries. It's very important to do that. And fortunately, the government has a form for every occasion. All right. And uh, what if nothing's changed in your life? Is it a good idea to review it anyway? Absolutely. You need to review uh, everything that's going on with respect to your benefits. You need to review your health insurance form, your life insurance, your TSP, uh, and many other available forms regarding uh, federal pay and, unfortunately, death benefits. You need to make sure that these are up to date. Yeah, these are longish forms, and it's probably a good idea to make sure everything is correct anyway. So you just redo the form and resubmit it, you think is a good good policy? Well, every agency is a little bit different. Some agencies have a uh, payroll program, or they do many of their benefits through some sort of a online program, which makes it easy for human resources. Other agencies that are not uh, on the on the high technology end, end of it still have to submit the paper forms. So there are many different types. And a really important form that a lot of federal employees don't know about, it's called the SF-1152. And that's the designation of beneficiary in the event that you pass away as a federal employee, how that that form handles unpaid wages. Who is going to get that last paycheck? And that form is very important. Yeah, so if something has changed in your family life then, for example, if you got divorced or if a child became of majority age or whatever, anything could happen, grandchildren came into the picture, then you would want to just make sure everything is the way you want it to be, given the changed circumstances. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the day that I got married, uh, that following Monday when I came back from my honeymoon, I went down to HR and I filled out my SF-2809 relating to health benefits. And it's a table of permissible changes in enrollment. It's called a qualifying event. The day I got married, I added my spouse to the health benefits. The day I had uh, my daughter, uh, she was automatically put on the health benefits. So I had to fill out a form for her as well. So yes, you you have to update your forms because no one is going to do that for you. You have to be responsible for doing it yourself. And what should people be thinking about with respect specifically to health insurance at this point in the year? Well, for health insurance, you should really be looking at how much have you spent so far this year? 
if you are not participating in the federal spending account, which you can put money aside to pay for benefits, you need to think about how much money you're spending towards your health benefits. And the FSA program is, is a very good program to participate in. You can save quite a bit of money on your taxes as well as paying for benefits. But you also should be looking at to see if the present coverage of your health plan satisfies your medical needs uh, for yourself, for your spouse, and for your family members. Is it providing the health benefits that you need? Because health changes and circumstances arise during the year, and the open season isn't all that long. It's only about three weeks and so that's maybe too short a time to really do all the math, add up all of the possibilities before you go out and choose a plan. So it sounds like you're saying forearmed with some knowledge about what your circumstances are at this moment. It might make your time more efficient during open season in comparing the plans themselves. Yeah, certainly if you develop some sort of a health issue, uh, you need to look to see does your health plan cover that health issue. And if it doesn't, you need to make an adjustment during open season to seek out a plan that you can afford and provides the health benefits that you need. So prior to open season, the comparison chart comes out and it gives you a summary of benefits. And certainly the most important part is the, uh, the premiums that are going to be associated with that health plan. So you need to do your homework. You should spend time doing this because health benefits is a very uh, expensive part of your budget during the year, and you need to evaluate that seriously. And if you are contemplating retirement in, say, six months, I mean, you're deep into that window of you better know what the heck's going on financially for when you do retire. What are some of the questions to have at this point? Well, retirement is something that you really need to think, is this the right year for, for me to retire? And also, can I afford to retire? Uh, are you going to have the sufficient amount of income stream to pay your monthly bills, to pay your health insurance, and also be able to go on a vacation or spoil your grandchildren or buy a motorcycle, whatever that little extra is, you need to understand, can your monthly retirement income stream handle those expenses? And what about life insurance? That requirement changes at each stage of life, too. And sometimes people carry on with these long-term policies long after they're all that economically beneficial. Well, from a personal standpoint, Tom, I had a 20-year term life insurance policy for myself and my wife. And when I reached age 62, I was thinking about retirement. I realized I didn't have any more debt, so I decided to terminate my life insurance. But if you need to make some sort of a change, say you got divorced or married, you need to fill out the SF-2823 designation of beneficiary. You don't want your ex-spouse becoming the beneficiary of your life insurance if 
that is something you don't want to happen. <laughs> right. So you better update that form. And that spouse is going to be on the lookout for that. You can be sure of that. So you've got to make sure you're a step ahead. Well, there's another interesting thing about that, Tom, and that is uh, Social Security. Uh, a lot of times when uh, a person passes on, their ex-spouse is entitled to their Social Security benefits. That's something that somewhat can't be stopped. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize that. They Sometimes they have this feeling that they don't want their ex-spouse to get any more than the money that they settled with them at the time of divorce. So a lot of these issues come into play. Sure. And I guess if you yourself have gone to the great beyond, then maybe you won't care so much where your Social Security benefits get distributed. The other issue is, you know, your thrift savings plan strategy. Again, midsummer, the stock market is a little better than it was way. Well, it's way better than it was a year, a year and a half ago. And I think there was a recent story in one of the papers nationally about how many people that are boomers, that is either retired or getting set to retire, are getting aggressive in their investment strategies, maybe to make up for lost time. What's your thought there? Well, I think every participant in the TSP should be somewhat aggressive in order to keep up with inflation and to keep up with the withdrawals from their TSP if they're going to make monthly withdrawals. Now, personally, I had my account drop, I believe it was about 25 to 27 percent since last year and it has now come back 17 percent and it's still about eight percent away from the all-time high but you need to be somewhat aggressive and also you need to review your tsp3 uh, thrift saving plan designation of beneficiary now the website the tsp website does allow you to make a change electronically online with your beneficiaries. You should have a primary and at least a contingent in the event something happens uh, to your primary beneficiary. I recently updated mine. Uh, I had my parents listed and I unfortunately I had to remove my parents and then make sure that my spouse and my daughter were added. So, yes, it's very important to review this uh, every year. And if you are retired now and you still have to think about health insurance, your TSP, what you're withdrawing from it, et cetera, et cetera, any particular advice now, again, this kind of mid-year housekeeping check? If you're thinking about retirement uh, it, it, and you really should, I hate to say, update the death benefits form, uh, SF-3104, uh, uh, in the event that, you know, you, you, you do pass away, there is a beneficiary for your benefits if you're a federal employee. Now, if you are uh, uh, thinking about retirement, you're going to have to develop an account on the OPM retirement services online website and you really need to think about uh, making sure that you have a will and some sort of uh, plan to I hate to say what is going to happen in the event you do pass away what are your wishes 
when that come when that day happens. Don't leave that to to be the decision of a family member who will have to make that decision for you. And probably but, it's a good idea not to download a will form from the internet and fill it out, but shell out what you need to to get a competent estate attorney to to handle that for you. Yes, yeah, so a will. A simple will is not that expensive to do, and you should also have a power of attorney form and also health care proxies. In the event uh, something happens to you and, and you are unable to make uh, medical decisions on your own, your bills still have to get paid uh, if you can't make your medical decisions on your own. So, yes, a will, power of attorney, and healthcare proxies. Very important. Sounds like if you do all of that review now, then uh, this way when you hit vacation, you'll really be able to enjoy that margarita by the beach and not have any worries about your financial planning. Yeah, it, financial planning is not just about the numbers. It's about retirement decisions, life decisions. Have you thought of everything? And these decisions have to be made. It's best to make them before uh, the, uh, uh, something happens in your life. You don't want someone else to be uh, making this decision for you, and you don't want to have uh, these decisions made for by a judge in court or something along that line to settle the estate of your affairs. So try to do your homework and try to prepare. Proper planning prevents poor performance. And if you have a checklist and run through these things and get these things done before you retire, retirement will be pretty pretty uh, straightforward and you can spend more time vacationing and fishing, et cetera. Financial advisor Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. Always a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. More than a quarter of federal contracting dollars last year went to small businesses. At NASA, more than a third of contract spending went to small businesses last year, earning its sixth consecutive A grade from the Small Business Administration. For more on NASA's small business contracting goals, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with NASA Senior Procurement Executive Carla Smith-Jackson. And first, you'll hear from the Associate Administrator of NASA's Office of Small Business Programs, Glenn Delgado. We have a good partnership in locating small businesses. We do a lot of outreach together to try and locate the small businesses that can do the various missions that we work with to try to make sure that they have the capabilities and skills and training to be able to be successful because the more successful they are, the more successful we are. I would say it's engagement with the program so that Glenn's organization understands the requirements and then matching those capabilities with the small business and then, of course, we come over to our side to execute. But all that upfront work that Glenn talked about is really the success. But it does start with understanding the technical requirement, which is our program side that partners well with small business as well. All right. Well, obviously, NASA does a lot of contracting just across the board. So when it comes to that small business criteria, understanding what small businesses are eligible to compete for, give me a better sense of how that process works here at NASA. 
from a procurement perspective, we do quite a bit of market research, and that's a requirement per the Federal Acquisition Regulation. Market research is, is knowing what capabilities are available. And so those companies are then channeled over to small business. Office of Small Business puts together quite a bit of information I'm sure Glenn can talk about that's searchable for our requiring activity to be able to find, and then they invite small businesses in to talk about them. On my side, we do have an acquisition forecast, which is 18 to 24 months in the future, so people can see what those requirements are, searchable, sort of, unsortable. In fact, we just received another award for that particular system. So then we let industry know what's coming. If they know what's coming soon enough, then they can organize to be able to bid on our requirements. One of the things that we've done is, you know, because most of the people that work with me are MBA types like me, business types. We don't talk to scientific stuff. So we put together a program where we have people that are small business tech advisors and small business tech coordinators. So when the small businesses come to us and tell us, hey, we have this idea, we have this, you know, my eyes can kind of glaze over. So we make sure that we match them with the people in the mission offices that can talk the same language with them. And then they see if they have a match, there's something that we can work with them to make sure our missions are successful. So that's the best way we can say that we we meet with them, we hear what they have to say. A lot of times eh, we match them with the people in the tech offices, in the program offices, as she says, and they can see if there's a match and that we can be successful in our mission. All right. I don't know if you have this information at your fingertips here, but we did hear about SBA government-wide meeting that small disadvantaged business goal. Where do things stand on that particular goal? Are you guys on track to meet that goal? Where do things stand currently? In FY22, we actually had an 8.1 goal, I believe it was, or an 8.2, and we, and we had a, ended up with an 8.1. So we missed it by 0.01. This year, we're a little behind that pace, but we're ahead of the pace we were last year. And a lot of people don't know that a lot of our small business dollars are awarded in the fourth quarter quarter. So right now we're headed where we were at the end of the third quarter last year in 22. So we have a shot at making it in 23, but we do do a lot of large contract awards that basically offset our numbers. So the larger contracts we award, the smaller chance we have of making the SDB number, but we're trying hard. We did exceed the overall small business goal, but the SDB that has to get to 15% by FY25, NASA will be making quite a large contribution to that. It is a challenge because we do have a lot of large human space flight procurements. But we're working hard to find just the niche opportunities for the small businesses. And $3.2 billion, that's a lot of real money that small businesses have received. Carla, you were saying that there's a longer-term forecast looking at those small business opportunities for the future. In terms of that outlook, where do you see the opportunities for small businesses to continue to do business with NASA? So there are two really big opportunities. The first is what we call product service lines. So those are all of our services contracts. So there are certain lines that we're reserving for small business um, to look at small business first, like construction and facilities management and that kind of thing. That's the first big opportunity. And then the other opportunity is subcontracting, right, with some of our larger programs, those are the kinds of opportunities from a subcontracting perspective that are are offered and available. Um, We do also have a lot of research projects um, with our STMD group. We have a lot of opportunities to work on science and scientific research. Those are smaller opportunities, but yet a lot of money um, is invested there. So that gives people a good start to be able to start to do business with us. All right. And we heard from Administrator Nelson saying that this is not just, you know, of course, the equity argument side of things is very important for not just NASA, but the Biden administration. That this is also just the way that NASA does its very extraordinary mission, gets people to the moon, someday gets people to Mars, uh, and that small businesses are a key piece of the puzzle there. How are small businesses a key piece of this very unique mission? 
our office puts out a lot of publications, you know, so we looked at Orion, we looked at uh, SLS, we looked at a lot of the, our major programs, and an average of almost 1,200 to 2,000 small businesses participate in each one of those programs. And then some of them make very critical parts, so like the Mars Rover, they actually made the drill that drills down and takes the samples that brings it back. So they do a lot of critical work, and we highlight them, and then they, we actually, our large prime, I won't say share them, but if one does a good job for one, they do another job for another and another, and then they keep growing, and they get very successful, and they diversify what they can do for us because of that. So we just make sure that, one, that they know about the opportunities, that they understand the opportunities, and more importantly, they perform well on the opportunities, and then that helps them grow, which helps us get our missions done. More than 75% of those service contracts that I talked about that provide infrastructure services to, to NASA goes to small business. So that there you can see more than um, three-fourths of the dollars in that arena go to small business. The other piece is we find a lot of innovation comes out of small business. So when we have hard problems, a lot of times we go to the small business to come up with the ideas um, to achieve that. So in that, we're counting on small business to help us get to moon and to Mars. And we're counting on them because they come up with not only innovation, but more efficient ways to do business and to solve hard problems. And I think you heard some of that with some of the um, companies that talked today. In particular, we went to those companies to be able to give us, I'll say, cutting-edge or leading-edge solutions. All right. And then just to unpack the other side of that question, the equity side of things, of course, this is a big priority for the Biden administration. Uh, I believe NASA's uh, Small Business Contractor of the Year is a hub zone contractor. So in terms of, again, making sure that those federal spending dollars, those contracting dollars go to underserved businesses, go to underserved communities, uh, you know, how do you see the federal government and, and NASA specifically driving towards that very important goal? The pandemic's been good to us, to say that in the least, because now, instead of all these companies having to go to outreach events where they have to get on an airplane, but get a hotel, rent a car, all of that. We've been doing a lot of virtual outreach, and we've been targeting that community. And those numbers of companies in those communities have gone up. I don't know the exact percentage, but very significantly. And they love the idea. And matter of fact, most of our outreach events, people stay for an average of about, I think it's 90% of the time of our outreach events, where the norm in the world is about 37 to 40% of the time they, they split out. And so our content is very good. We make sure we get all the guest speakers that are properly vetted from our procurement people to our technical people to our mission support people. They come and actually talk at these outreach events and the companies actually hear us, listen to us, and they can still go right back to work the same day instead of having to do a lot of travel. So that's, I think, has helped us significantly and increase our numbers in those areas. Glenn Delgado, the Associate Administrator of NASA's Office of Small Business Programs, and you also heard from NASA Senior Procurement Executive Carla Smith-Jackson. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.